going to do a special communion message, as we often do the first Sunday of the month, and then uh, next week we'll launch back into our series in Romans, and we'll finally finish it off, Romans uh, 15 and 16 in the months to come. But for now, turn with me to John chapter 14. John 14, and we'll get there about halfway through here. But I'd like to begin today with a question. And that is this. Who was it that said, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me? And he proved to be a prophet because after he said that, all hell broke loose. Do you remember where those words were? What if I were to say it right now? The ruler of the world is coming and all hell is about to break loose. Would you know what to do? What would you do if you knew it were true? Who's the ruler of the world? Well, of course, it's Satan. And he has come again and again down through history to steal, to kill, uh, and to destroy, as Christ said in John 10. He comes to both men and nations. He's arrived uh, on the scene big time at key times in human history. And it's going to climax in the last days when Paul says lawlessness is going to increase. Remember that? And the lawless one will be revealed. That is, Satan incarnate is going to come. The ruler of the world will come for the last time in the last days. That's the end. Antichrist. But of course, there have been many antichrists, as uh, John tells us, from Nero to Stalin to Hitler, a whole litany of them. And there have been numerous times down through history when it's looked like the last days, which is in God's plan because it keeps his people on the edge of his seats where we need to be all the time, right? And it's very likely that we're approaching just such a time. And it could be the last. It's too soon to tell for sure, but it could very well be. Every generation has thought it could very well be. It's 2012, the 100th anniversary, interestingly, of the sinking of the Titanic. And look what happened to the cruise liner in Italy. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe God's trying to say something. Who knows? But there are many uh, apocalyptic scenarios that could so easily come true. All of you have seen it. All of you kind of, many of you already feel it in your bones. Well, they could easily come true, whether economically or politically or, you know, militarily, any one of which would produce tremendous social unrest. And if they all happen together, we're talking, well... I won't fill in the blank. It's rare in history that things are lined up like they are today. Such a confluence of possibilities, and especially during such times, we must never forget what the real problem is, who the, uh, who the real enemy is, who it is that will exploit all these things, whatever happens, to his own ends. Uh, what we should really be focusing on is what I'd like to talk about today. As Paul said, we must not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And part of not being ignorant is being ready. And in light of all that could easily lie ahead, I'd be failing in my calling as a pastor if I did not try to prepare you for it. Some of you are already preparing in different ways. I'd be what Christ called a hireling. Like he said in John chapter 10, if, you know, I saw the wolf coming, really, the dragon in this case, as we're going to see in a few minutes, if I saw the dragon coming, you know, and ran or, or pretended I didn't see him for fear that he might turn away, you know, and then I'd look like a chicken little. Oh, no, that's what the hired hand does. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, John 10, 12, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing about the sheep. He's saying uh, in this passage, as we find many places in Scripture, that the wolf does come. He's warning them that the, the wolf is going to come. And he's saying that the good shepherd sees the wolf coming and does something before it actually gets there and it's too late. It's the same passage where he says that he comes to steal, to kill, uh, and to destroy. I, I could be wrong, and I'm willing to suffer the consequences if I am, but I believe that we're in a lull before the storm. The ruler of the world is coming yet again. The signs are everywhere. And the better part of compassion is for me to warn you. Because the better part of wisdom is not just to put our heads in the sand, but to know what to do. Do you know what to do under such circumstances? About a year from now, it'll be time, and I think we'll be ready as a body about, in about a year to start going through the book of Revelation which God gave His people as a roadmap for just such times down through history. And to launch us in that direction here at the beginning of 2012, I'd like to start with this. The ruler of the world is coming. Who said it? Yeah, Jesus Christ. And do you remember when He said it? It was before He went to the cross, before the greatest battle in history the greatest battle of his life. And, and what do you think he meant when he said after that, and he has nothing in me? He meant that there was no impurity in him that the evil one could, ex could, could exploit to, to destroy him permanently. He, he was pure, he was implying, and so he was safe. And not just safe, he was strong. His purity for him was like security. It provided a kind of security that he knew would protect him and empower him uh, in the battle. It was like a, a sun and a shield through him because it allowed the Father to shine through him, like a sun through him and a shield around him because the dark one had no place in him and so he was resplendent. And so he said, the ruler of the world is coming, but that's okay. Because he has nothing in me. And that same picture up there on the screens can be you. Or better, it can be us. Because that same Christ is with us, and not only with us, he is in us to shine through us, right? That picture we'll see is us together as we face the future as we face the ruler of this world. Today we're going to see how to strike that posture up there. To be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might so that together we'll look like that picture. That's my goal. Those words are out of John chapter 14. This is the middle of Christ's farewell discourse just before what you might call the battle of the cross. The battle on the hill that we called Golgotha. And I'd like to tell you a story today to get ready for what could be the fulfillment of prophecy. I'd like to recount some spiritual history because it will stir you, I think you'll find, as it, it, it did me anyway, it will stir, stir in you a spiritual response to all that's going on around us today, which is by far the most important. And when we're done today, more than anything else, you will want to be like that. You'll want to be spiritually ready, and I'll show you how.
It's the true story of a great battle that happened 2,000 years ago that I'd like to tell, one that came about because of a battle long before that. A battle that's going to end with World War III or something like it. Some of you may remember that in World War II, V-Day was what? The day of... Yeah, that was the day of victory. And it happened when at the very end of it all, the Allied forces won the Battle of Berlin. But it was all made possible by what happened many months before on what? Which day? D-Day, yeah, when they stormed the the beaches of Normandy. And in the same way, V-Day, the V-Day, you might say, of all spiritual history, the day of final victory will be at the second coming of Christ with the last world war, probably World War III, when heaven will be opened, as it says in Revelation 19, and the Son of Man will come with the armies of heaven, clothed in white linen, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. But it will all be made possible by what happened on D-Day long ago at the Battle of Golgotha. It was Satan's revenge, that battle, or so he thought it would be, for another great battle that took place long before that, long before uh, Christ was on the cross. It happened after Satan swept away a third of the stars of heaven, as we're told in Revelation chapter 12, which means he swept away a third of all the angels. This mutiny happened long ago, around the time that the world was created. We're not sure, but it was uh, quite a while ago, and there was a great rebellion in heaven. You see, Lucifer was the highest ranking of all the angels. In fact, his name means the light bearer because he had such, such splendor. Indeed, it looks like he was second only to the Son in glory and in proximity to the Father. He was just, you might say he was just off the Oval Office. According to Ezekiel 28, it says he walked on the holy mountain of God on the stones of fire. And they didn't burn him. He could handle being so close to God because it says he had every precious stone for his covering. Almost like a dragon with scales, you know, that aren't affected by fire. That's what he was like. God created Lucifer with a coat of jewels. Every precious stone was his covering, Ezekiel 28, 13. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper. These are all very literal terms, and the best interpretation is that's what he wore. That's, what he, that's his skin back then. But it says his heart was lifted up because of his beauty uh, and his splendor. And it says he tried to ascend to the stars to gain supremacy over all the angels and supremacy even above the one who was second in rank only to God the Father, and that is the Son. It's like he was always saying, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the brightest of them all? And then he saw the sun, and it drove him crazy. And so there was a war in heaven, Revelation 12, 7. Michael and his angels were waging war with him, with the dragon, as uh, John calls him. And the dragon and his angels waged war. It was a civil war in heaven. And a third of the angels joined in the rebellion. But it says they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, the ruler of the world, came down to come again and again down through history. 
And his angels were thrown out too, whom we now call demons. And we're told that Lucifer swept them uh, all down to the earth to destroy the one who would be born of the woman, it says in Revelation 12. Um, That is to destroy his arch rival, the Son of God, when he was born as a baby. Which, of course, is what Herod tried to do by killing everyone. And we know that story. All the babies. Lucifer had been waiting a long time by the time Christ had arrived. But, of course, he found more than enough to do. And the story of human history is the story of what he has found to do in a lot of ways. Because he went after those... He couldn't get the sun yet, so he went after those who were created in the image of the sun. Starting with Adam and Eve. He had a score to settle with the one whose image we bear, with this beloved son, with whom the Father was so well pleased. Whom the Father had loved before the foundation of the world, as this son said. To whom the Father had given the nations as an inheritance, uh, the psalmist said, who was preeminent in glory, as we're told in Scripture, whom all the angels had to worship. But not Lucifer. Not on his exalted life, not on his precious jewels, which, by the way, had been reduced to scales, to hard scales. Because though he was the greatest of all the cherubim, he had become a great dragon. He was filled with violence, as it says in Ezekiel 28:16, and fire was brought forth from the midst of him. He was, I think the image there is of, of, of a fire-breathing dragon, you know, whose own flames would stoke his anger all the more. And now at the cross, which we celebrate today, it was all about to be fulfilled. This this Luciferian uh, strategy that began with, uh, with the failed treachery in heaven that took place so long ago. At long last, it was in his grasp. It was time to avenge himself, to destroy the one who would be born of a woman. And at long last, to gain preeminence over the sun. And to that end, they were all gathering at Jerusalem. Satan and his minions. Row upon row of them, rank upon rank of demonic hordes, the rulers, as Paul calls them, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They were all there, swarming in with the, from the four winds with the ruler of the world. Now, let me just... Add a parenthesis here. We've seen the son knew he was coming. We know that from, from what he said. But in another way, you'd never know that it was about to happen. You'd never know it because the night before it all took place, he had this, like, surreal peace and the presence of mind to talk about so much as though he didn't have a care in the world. This is the one who's on our side. We call this his last discourse, a remarkable sermon. Greatest, one of the greatest sermons in the Bible, stretching over four chapters, John 13 to 16. It's packed with these memorable words, with sayings and teachings. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Let not your heart be troubled. How could he say that? Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the vine. 
You are the branches. Powerful teaching. These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This was like, you know, this was D-Day Eve. He's going to be the only player on the beaches of Normandy. The son was about to be separated from the father, and then, you know, the, the supreme uh, allied command of the universe was about to be divided. Yet, listening to him that night, you'd never know it. And in John 14 13, 14 he tells us why. He said, I will not speak much more with you. He says, For the ruler of the world is coming. That is the great dragon, as John called him, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. The ruler of the world is coming. And in spite of all that this guy is, he says, and he has nothing in me. And just what does that mean? Next verse, John fourteen thirty one. But that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. That is, he has nothing in me because my Father has my all. My whole heart, my complete obedience, I am protected by the resplendence of my purity of the Father through me, just like we can be in him. And so all is well. And so, back to the story. Long ago, Lucifer, the light bearer, Brilliant and resplendent though he was, refused to do homage to the Lord of Light. As did a third of heaven's angels. They all came down to earth, and after centuries of seeking to devour his image bearers, they were all there that night to destroy the one in whose image we were all created. The, the beloved son himself, the teacher's pet. All the powers had come to play. Like, 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 like bats, they were swarming all over the place for those that had eye to see. In the crowds they were, among the disciples. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. All these powers are just pushing all their buttons. We struggle not against flesh and blood, right? They were even in the seat of justice. It was a very dark time. It was, time. It was one of those times uh, in human history from which we can learn what to do. In fact, just one chapter earlier in John 13, it says that Satan had entered into Judas after he had gone out. And it says in verse 30 of chapter 13 that it was night. It was said in almost a poetic way in the Greek. It was a dark time indeed. After receiving the morsel of bread, it says he immediately went out and it was night. John says it emphatically in the Greek because this just wasn't any night. This was the night of nights. And what a night it was, right? What a cup, what a kiss, what a prayer. Being in agony, it says, he was praying very fervently in Gethsemane. He prayed a prayer that melted the heart of heaven and that shook the very timbers of hell with the distant thunder of God's wrath. 
And for a brief moment, they all probably maybe went silent. Legions of demons stopped their, their reveling, their foul reveling, and they all cocked their heads, and they were thinking, is this a terrible mistake? What's going on here? But not for long. And the next day it says darkness fell over the whole land because Satan and, and his, his bats had turned good into evil. Religion had become not, uh, not much less, more than sorcery, and the state had become a bludgeon. Justice had been removed from the candlestick. The truth himself had stood in the stand and been found guilty. And it seemed that the only love left in the world was the love of money and the, the love of power and the love of self. Such times are like that. Oh, it was night all right. When the disciples fled and the women wept and the crowds uh, cried crucify and the father uh, had to hold the angels at bay and they covered their faces with their wings. Was it possible that the black prince would, you know, checkmate the white king? Had he avenged himself for good at long last? Had the ruler of the world gained his ascendancy even over the sun? Even the angels may have wondered. The disciples sure did. But there was no way. Not on his, his, uh, his holy life, because he had nothing in him. And so the Father did not abandon his soul to Sheol, Psalm 1610. Neither did he allow his holy one to undergo decay. And in just three days, the angel of the Lord uh, descended from heaven and, and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment was white as snow. And with an even brighter flash, he arose. And it says in Romans that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, Romans 1, 4, and get this, through the spirit of holiness. Resplendent in the spirit of holiness, he arose and he drove back the darkness. And because of all he did, because of who he was, because of who he is, to this day, we can stand firm in the evil day. We can stand tall. We can stand like that. And we can sing, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabaoth his name. The Lord, the commander of all the heavenly hosts. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devil's fill should threaten to undo us, God knows it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. 
That word above all earthly powers, I love this, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. The whole person of Christ, through him who with us sighteth. Let goods and kindred go. They don't matter. It doesn't matter if that's in your future. This mortal life also, this body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is what? Forever. And it's all the blink of a life by comparison. Brothers and sisters, the ruler of the world is coming. And don't be like the rest who prefer to live in denial, who give anything, you know, not to have their comfortable lives disturbed by a politically incorrect message. Don't be like that who want their ears tickled by smiley-faced preachers, who care more about their jobs than about their people, who care more about being liked by men than being approved by God, who live like there's no tomorrow. Last time this happened was the beginning of World War II, or one of the last times. And it's really like Walter Lippmann wrote, just a few months before the attack on Pearl Harbor, when everyone was so complacent, he said this, Millions will listen to and prefer to believe those who will tell them that they need not rouse themselves and that all will be well if they only continue to do all the pleasant and profitable and comfortable things that they would like to do best. Have you been swept up in that spirit? I pray God that we're not. So, what if I were to say today, what if I were to say it right now? The ruler of the world is coming, and all hell will break loose. Would you know what to do? Would you, what would you do if you knew it were true? Isn't it better to prepare for the worst and to hope the best? It only makes sense. What if I told you that the picture up there on the screen can be you? Or better, that it can be us as we face the future together, as we square off with the ruler of the world in his power. How do we strike that posture? How do we shine like saints in light, as the Scripture calls us, and all together like logs in a fire? It begins with, and we've talked about this before, it begins with prayer and fasting all together. Prayer and fasting. That's what Israel did when they were surrounded by their enemies, when there was a national uh, danger. That, it's what Christ did before, remember, before the great temptation at the beginning of his ministry, before uh, he was baptized. Uh, he, uh, he knew the ruler of the world was coming to tempt him. And so he prayed and fasted for 40 days to get ready and to prepare for the battle of three years. It's what Christ told his disciples in Gethsemane just before the ruler of the world did come. He said to his disciples, when he's saying it to you today, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. 
It's what Paul said we should do in the evil day. He said, put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. And then he ends it with the most important, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That's the foundation. That's where it begins. Some of you remember that when I last preached on fasting, it was last fall. It was during my own 40-day fast when I was preparing myself under it all for what I'm talking about today, for this future. I said that we'd be doing a 40-day fast uh, as a congregation early this year to lead us up to Easter and that you all could do the same thing, or maybe not 40 days, but a day or two or whatever. And so four months later, now is the time. I said that you could sign up to fast a meal a week over the 40-day period or a day a week over that six-week period or for three days in a row, you know, sometime during the 40 days, depending on how much you've already done this or however God led you. I said that the goal would be to fill up each meal as a body, all 120 of them, three times 40 is 120, right? Maybe to fill them up several times. And you'll see them at the welcome table today where we'll be signing up all 120 meals on six clipboards, one clipboard for uh, each week. It'll start on February 28th, three weeks from this coming Tuesday. So you'll have plenty of time to seek God as to how you should be involved if, if you're not sure. Here's what I'd like you to do between now and then. One, listen to the message that I gave on fasting. Uh, Listen to it again. The one I gave last fall. Just go to our website, click podcast. That's on the left-hand side. And then once you get to the next page, click on October 9th. That's when I gave the message. The message titled, Power Perfected in Weakness, which is what fasting is all about. So one, listen to that message. Some of you, it'll be for the first time. Others, it'll be again. And then two, next week, there's going to be a bunch of these books on the welcome table. And uh, it's titled, God's Chosen Fast, A Spiritual and a Practical Guide to Fasting. Uh, It's a classic. It's by Arthur Wallace. And it will teach you all that you need to know. It will ground you in the scriptural basis for it and give you some good practical instruction um, uh, if you're unfamiliar with this. What are we going to be focusing on during the fast? Well, very simply, three things. And I'll repeat this over the next few weeks. First, you're going to be getting this spiritual warfare prayer. This puts to words all the work of Christ. It claims the work of Christ through the blood of Christ. It puts on the armor of God. It trains us how to do it by actually doing it through prayer. And so you'll get, Julie and I have been using it for years. Whenever things get intense, whenever we sense there's a huge battle, we'll pull it out, get on our knees together on the couch and pray. We've almost got it memorized. So you'll get this um, to pray. And I'd encourage you to pray this prayer during each meal that you commit to fast. Just put it in your Bible and pray it through. In the prayer, you'll be duking it out with him based on what He has done. You'll be in His shoes. This prayer will turn you into that. So that's uh, first. You'll get a spiritual warfare prayer. That's one thing we'll be doing. Second of three, you'll focus on some issue. Okay? Some issue in your life, in the life of a friend, the life of a family member, where you need to see a breakthrough. 
You've tried and tried. You've gone directly against the concrete wall. You've tried to dig under it, go around it, over it. Nothing has worked. That's a sign that it's time to fast. And so uh, I'd encourage you to, to focus on one thing, whatever that is, a friend, yourself, a family member. And I believe we're going to see many, many breakthroughs because we'll be all doing it together. And then three, what we're going to do is this. Finally and third, we're going to shod our feet with the preparation, as Paul says, at the end of the spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6, we're going to shod our feet under it all with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Because at times like these, we need to be not just hunkering down, not just cowering in the shadows, but moving out. And so the third thing we'll be praying and fasting for is someone who God puts on your heart to invite to the Easter service. Which all this is leading up to. Because the 41st day, Easter Sunday, will be the day when together we break the fast and celebrate the victory of Christ through the resurrection. You know, fasting is all over the place in the Scripture. Did you know that, did you know that Christ is fasting right now? He's fasting for us. When he instituted communion, he said, I tell you, he, he said, I tell you, I'm going to say something important here. This is not just an aside. I tell you. So what did he tell them? I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's fasting to get us through so we can drink it anew with them in his Father's kingdom at the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's a partial fast. And so today I thought, I've not, not done this, it's never even crossed my mind in 30 years to do this, but I felt like God telling me this morning, and it can be subjective, but I need to act on it, um, that we need to join him in that fast. We're going to fast today from communion, just like he is, to prepare our body for this 40-day commitment. To seek God as to what He wants you to do. That's how important this is. And if you're visiting with us, maybe it'll prepare you at a distance to join us. We'd be glad to get you the materials to help guide your prayer and fasting leading up to Easter. We will launch our 40-day fast two days before it starts, three weeks from today. On Sunday, February 26th, it'll start on the 28th by uniting with Him at the communion table. That's when we'll do communion. Why are we going to do it then? Well, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Communion, we take him into us to symbolize that he is in us to shine resplendently through us, to stir up the Spirit, not just individually, but in the whole body. And so on the 26th, that's what we'll be doing. It's because of all that he's done, nothing in and of ourselves. Which one of us can say the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me? No, I've got an old man still worthy of hell that lives in me. We need him. It's because of all that he's done. It's because of all that he is. That though it be night outside, though it become the night of nights, you can still go into the world in peace. Amen. Why don't you all stand? Have courage. Hold on to what is good and mostly to Him. Honor all men. 
strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share this gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us and through us this week. Amen and amen. Thanks for coming. See you next week.